David Buick, I cannot begin to tell you how much pleasure this brings to, the, to me that I finally got you into my recording studio. David, good morning to you. Good morning to you, John. It's a great pleasure to be here. David, I've been doing a little homework on you. From Montreal, I see. Yes, um, 1949, my father was appointed uh, chief executive of Canadian Pacific Steamships, and we sailed out of Montreal, I think it was on the 3rd of October, 1949, to Bing Crosby singing, Now is the Hour. Goodness gracious. Extraordinary, and I remember it like it was yesterday, extraordinary, isn't it? One would, one would. Which was interesting at the time, 1949, because it had a very, um, how can I put it, ebullient business coming out of Amsterdam uh, in small cargo ships going all the way across to the Great Lakes, as well as having, of course, the great Empress of Britain, Empress of Canada, and Empress of Australia, which were, of course, liners. But as you can imagine, as the years rolled by into the 50s and the early 60s, the demand for this kind of transport diminished with, of course, aircraft. And he actually, funnily enough, left in about 1959, and he joined the Canadian Chamber of Commerce over here. So, David, the rest of your life, you settled as a family where? We lived in Highgate in North London. Yep. And my first memory of that was when I was a small child overlooking London. We were right at the top of the hill and overlooked what was the most wonderful panoramic view of London. And this extraordinary Rolls Royce used to sit outside our house every Sunday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I wondered who on earth it was. And I got my father out of his chair. He was about to get into his slumber after Sunday lunch. Queen Mary. And she used to sit there for an hour overlooking London. It was quite a view then. It is quite a view now, but a view that has changed, of course, dramatically. What were, what were the main um, points you could see from that lofty height on the horizon? There was very little in terms of there was no post office towers, you can remember, which would have been the highest yep. building. I mean, any of the other huge landmarks that you've seen in the city of London, they weren't there at all. And all one really could see in the distance was basically you could see Buckingham Palace, you could see Regent's Park, and you could just about see um, parts of the city of London. There were, there were no great big uh, buildings which stood out and made it, gave it great prominence. Yeah. And then to school. Very much so, yep. I went to school in Yorkshire, which absolutely terrified me. Uh, I was eight at the time, and it took something like 11 hours to get there, various, various, various railways. And going up the hill, I went to a school called Aysgarth, which is a small village called Newton the Willows yep. near Beedale. And I went there because my father was a huge friend of Guy Ropner, who ran a big shipping operation and also uh, ran the um, convoys across the Atlantic during the course of the war, which Indeed. my father worked for. And then ended up as he had, uh, that is Guy Ropner at Harrow, which I had spent five gloriously happy years, bone idle, loved every single minute of it and hardly passed an exam. What is interesting now is that I wouldn't have got across the threshold, with no A-levels, and my father was desperately disappointed. He took me to lunch at Gow's and he wore thick horn-rimmed spectacles, which was steamed up with the brown Windsor soup that he was eating. I wasn't certain if he was crying or whether it was the Windsor Soup, and he said, you failed these A-levels for a third time, you're going to have to go merchant banking. I wanted you to be a corporate lawyer. Well, that's derisory talk today, isn't it? But I had five fantastic years at Philip Hill Higginson Erlangers, which was probably at the time, with Warburg's, the most aspiring of all the merchant banks. It was under the guidance at the time of uh, Sir Kenneth Keith, who was the chairman and chief executive of Philip Hill Higginson, and Peter Samuel and Lord Bearstead, who were the senior directors of M. Samuel. Yep. And what M. Samuel did was to complement what I call genuine banking 
with what I call corporate finance, which is what Philip Hill brought to the party. Yeah. They were an interesting outfit um, and made a, a big impact on the city of London in their day. They did very much so. And, you know, one of the interesting things that when Big Bang came in 1986, um, they tried to put a merger together with um, TSB. Um, but at the time, but it, I don't think it was wholly successful. The, then the, the bank was under the management or the general direction of Christopher Castleman. Um, and one of the reasons that I think it, the, the brand fell by the wayside until it got into TSB was the fact that it didn't actually want to get involved immediately in any of the large market makers. I think probably in hindsight that was a mistake, but that was the line of business that they chose to take. I think probably, John, only two stand out, well, probably three stand out of being a huge success. Um, I think the uh, Warburg alliance with the Swiss Bank and UBS and Ackroyd and Smithers and Mullins um, was a success. Yes. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think the Morgan Grenfell success with Deutsche Bank was probably at the time a success as well. And apart from that, you know, Barclays uh, spent an awful lot of money buying Dazoot and Vem, but I'm not certain how much money they actually made out of it. Yeah. Um, but obviously, as a brand, it proved to be very successful. And when it became Barclays Capital, it became enormously successful. But yeah. initially, I don't think it did. But you weren't stopping your market-making, were you? No, that wasn't my line of country at all. No, that... I was a money broker. Yeah. Um, I was interested in uh, finance and foreign trade, foreign exchange, and more really realistically in deposit and uh, CD business, certificates of deposit initially. And then, of course, the derivatives that came along in the early 90s, which made London explode as an international market. I think probably if I had my life over again, I think I probably if anybody wanted to pin something on my epitaph or an epitaph on my grave, I think it would be, John, the grass is not always greener on the other side. And I moved more often than I should have done. And I should have consolidated what I believed in and fought for it, rather than somebody saying, well, this is what the way we're going to do it, and me saying, well, I'm not going to do it this way because I don't believe it's the right way of doing it, and clearing off. Give me, take me through one or two of the firms you were working with during Well, I started my life off with probably, at the time, was the best foreign exchange firm, which was a company called R.P. Martin. Yep. And R.P. Martin was particularly strong in dollar sterling, which at that time was very important and much more important <coughs> than dealing in Deutschmarks or Swiss francs. But it wasn't really as comprehensive as it might have been, and the management was actually quite weak. And they had a sterling department, which I was part of, which had a massive clear-out um, just before I joined, everybody joining sterling brokers, hence they, me being uh, attracted to go and do that. And I, I was attracted on a number of reasons, was that I was given the princely sums of, of an increase in salary of £100, up from £900 to £1,000. Having been there five years, it wasn't quite what I had in mind. And when somebody says to you at lunch, how about 1,500 quid to start with, and then a bonus that will probably take you up to £3,000, apart from the fact that the top 500 quid would have gone at 83% tax at that time. Indeed. It had enormous appeal, as you can imagine. Of course. So off I went. Of course you did. And I had a, I had two years of unbelievable, interesting uh, you know, development, learning how to be a broker, learning how to be able to build relationships. This is why I'm so profoundly, John, against working from home. Because I think the idea, I mean, here we are, you and I, we don't know each other, but already we're comfortable in each Absolutely. other's because Completely. we have the ability to communicate. Yes. 
And all yes. this wretched thing with the iPhone and the UG and, you know, the quick text and the rest of it and trying to do deals over Zoom and the rest of it, I, I believe that is still anachronistic. I think it's wrong. And I accept that in certain areas with technology, and there's nothing I'm going to do that is going to hit, be here to stay. But what I loved more about my job than anything else is that I've learned the ability to be able to deal with people, to build a relationship with them, to respect those people who were much more senior than me, and to bring on those people. Because remember, when you and I joined the City of London, that if you didn't come from a public school background, it was going to be very tough. Yes. Now, by 1970, that was not the case. No, it's changed. And certainly in the area of money broking, uh, anybody from a public school background was in from a huge minority. Mm. And there were some incredibly clever people. And what I love so much, which really coincided with the Thatcher area, is when, you know, Nigel Lawson initially said with Thatcher, look, we're not going to tax people on what they earn. We're going to tax them on what they spend. And people from very ordinary backgrounds like mine had the ability to borrow money at astronomical levels of, of interest rates. Like my average mortgage for 25 years is 12%. Yes. And, but... House prices. I mean, my first house I bought in 1973 was a was a, a, a three bedroom flat in Highgate. I paid six and a half thousand pounds for it. Yes. And you know that trading up is what we did, and that's yeah. how. And because tax came down from 83 percent of the highest level to 60 to 40 by 1986, it meant that if you had a good job, life was really worth living. Mm. Today, I'm not certain our children or our grandchildren are quite going to enjoy that level of comfort that we had. They were, those years, 70s, 80s, and 90s, were profoundly wonderful years for anybody who aspired to get on in life. And the, inter the next interesting part of my life, I suppose, was the Wenge crisis in 2008-9. Yep. And of course, the only reason that I really became anybody who would be on radio or television is that you could imagine every single manager of every bank was told, shush, say nothing. Yeah. So the only two people really, well, there were about three people, three or four people, were Justin Urquhart Stewart, um, who just left Barclays and set up, I think, uh, seven investment management. Yes, and I've met Justin. Yeah, Justin, and we were the only yeah. consistent speakers Indeed. on the subject. Yeah. And that really, I suppose, was where I had a little bit, well, you, you make your own luck in life. And I was there at the right time in the right place. Yeah. That, of course... Uh, the 2008 banking crisis, the effects of that are still going on. Absolutely. And it's still talked about, and I suspect may never end until the next banking crisis. Uh, well, it was interesting because I had a really interesting conversation with um, Sir Howard Davis, the chairman of NatWest, last week, and yep. I, I asked him whether he was happy with the level of regulation, and he said he was. And, of course, it was he who put up the nine regulatory bodies from under Gordon Brown in 2000. And apart from the fact it was not his fault, that there weren't enough quality people around because the banks were paying much higher salaries to get in than the FCA was or the FSA is now. Yep. And he believes that the level of, um, of um, capital requirements is pretty good and that, you know, it would take a really serious disturbance 
of incredible magnitude. Yes. And he's a man whose judgment, you know, I, I, I really admire, and I think he's a, a thoroughly good man. And, I, and having been with NatWest since 2015 and seen all that turmoil or trying to mend it up, yep. you know, with Ross McEwen and now with Alison Rose, Rose, I think he's a very big place, A, being a top-class regulator, C, having seen banking for seven years through what for NatWest have been pretty tricky times. Um, I, have, I have a lot of admiration for him. Yeah. Tell my listeners what you do with the Agnes Exchange. Well, an I'm, exchange which um, I am very interested in. My company is a member of the Agnes Exchange. We've got one or two companies on there. Tell me about your role. Well, my role is, is, is purely one, really, in an advisory and also in a PR capacity. Uh, Alistair Haynes has been a friend of mine for about 45 years. Right. And he's the chief executive. Indeed. And he's been, above everything else, uh, a personal friend of mine, more than a, a business associate. We met when he was a very junior dealer at Morgan Grenfell a million years ago. Um, but um, our friendship really has been more personal. And anyway, when I finished with um, uh, my short stint, which I absolutely love with Pamela Gordon, yep. um, again doing just PR, yes. um, he said, well, you're not, you're not washed up yet. Why don't you come and um, help me out of it? a bit of PR, so I said, be absolutely delighted. It is the buzziest shop I just thought I'd ever worked in. It's very personal because I think there's only about 60 or 65 people there. So he is, as a, somebody who presents his personal credentials and his enthusiasm for the job in hand and the fact that he will do any job uh, at any level really sticks with the staff. And the staff really warmed to him. And he's a, a, a very, very special leader. Aquas Exchange is, uh, for your listeners who are not familiar with it, is a, I suppose, an online pan-European broker. When I described it as an online pan-European stock exchange, I had a slap across the wrist because it's more than that. And it's got three uh, arrows to its bow. One is that it is in direct competition at a much lower level than the London Stock Exchange, Euronext, or anyone else of these exchanges. It, it, it does business uh, on the same level. Secondly, it does business as Aquas Stock Exchange in IPOs taking on the similar business to what AIM does. Indeed. Personally speaking, it's only a personal opinion, I believe it does a better job than AIM. It has 27 or 26 IPOs last year in a dead market. Admittedly, most of the companies are small. But what Aquis does, which I think is wonderful, is that it brings companies to the retail market. So you, John Bridges, or me, David Buick, if we see a company that they, we quite like and we've got a spare five grand or whatever it is and want to get involved, you get involved. Yeah. But you can't do that really on AIM. No. And it is online, and I just think I like the personal service. I like if something goes wrong, you're attended to straight away. But their technology is very strong and really doesn't go away. The other thing that Alistair and John Cleland did was open an office in Paris once they realized that the European Union was going to take Euro-based uh, equity business away from London and send it back to Amsterdam and Paris. Uh, both of them were quick out of the traps to yep. set up. And I was very proud of that e effort. I think um, Aquis 
had it not been for COVID, would be much bigger. Because Alistair is very much in the same league, John, as you and I are. Uh, we'll do the Zoom call. Doesn't like it. Likes to see the eyeballs of yep. who he's speaking to. Absolutely. And I think um, what they've done, of course, in the last two and a half years, in what I call horrible circumstances, which is a contracting IPO market because of what happened with yep. the COVID, and now this wretched man in Moscow as well yep. has damaged the market quite significantly. They would be way, way ahead of where they are now. But I, I, going forward, I have such knowledge as I have. I have enormous a respect and huge confidence that the business will be good. You have other activities, however, in your life. You are a podcaster yourself, are you not? I am, yes, yes. I am. Tell, tell well, me about that. Well, I basically do two lots of podcasts. I mean, first and foremost, Alistair very sweetly supported me, and we had a podcast called Full and Frank. And Full and Frank wasn't all business people. It was very eclectic. So we've spoken to people such as Michael Holding, such as um, uh, Stuart Rose, Justin Rose, Bernard Jenkin, all kinds of people, yep. which gave us, you know, which I think um, when you got the level of competition in podcasting, which John, as you know, is enormous, if you just go as the Aquis Stock Exchange podcast, uh, and only have business people, I think you're leading yourself wide open. Whereas if you suddenly do a left field number by producing somebody like Michael Holding, yes. you know, then I think you'll keep the interest going. Yes. And I'm I'm still do um, three three mornings a week for with Nick Ferrari, and as a result of which LBC asked Michael Wilson, who used to be the um, business editor at uh, Sky for 25 years, and we do the LBC Money podcast. And that, again, is all business, but it's it's very rounded to the degree that we would speak to stockbrokers, to Sir Martin Sorrell, to Stuart Rose, to all kinds of people uh, involved also in, um, I mean, for instance, uh, very shortly, I'm going to do one on art. It's another form of, uh, it's a wonderful company, um, which I, I just keep an eye on, called Beaumont Nathan. It's run by a fellow called um, Sam Johnson, who used to be a senior partner of Pamela Gordon, and he now runs Indeed. his online art business. And this is another asset, and I think you just need to keep things going. And um, also we do a lot of retail stuff, whether it's with supermarkets or insurance or various other things. So that's once a week every Monday. Um, I absolutely love it because, again, it gives me my, my passion, which is access to human beings, which I love. David, final thing I must just mention. You have an MBE. Chaps like you don't talk about these things. Though. You got it for services, financial services. What do you think you did that particularly caught people's attention? I have to say very honestly, John, I've never been more embarrassed with that uh, gong. Uh, and I simply didn't deserve it. And I'm not being modest, I promise you. Because when I went and I saw all those wonderful people who deal with mental health who lollipop ladies have been doing it for 55 years, seeing people, kids across the road. And what I call real contributors to society, people like me shouldn't get that kind of award. It's not deserved. And I, I really profoundly believe it. I mean, 
Whoever picked it up and, and, and proposed it, obviously I should be very, very grateful. And I am, but I'm also hugely embarrassed. David, you're clearly very busy. You are much sought after. And that is absolutely wonderful to see you and I are, are close in age. And uh, the more we can find to be doing, to actually be at our ages, the better. I'm glad I managed to catch your attention for this morning. Thank you for coming along to spend time with Guild Financial Advisory Podcasts. Huge pleasure, John. I can't tell you, it's enjoyed our conversation enormously. Bless you for inviting me. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. This content is issued by Guild Financial Advisory Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for designated investment business and is a member of the Aquis Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decision regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Guild Financial Advisory. Please note that participants within this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Mm -hmm.